This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday time for our Zoomer squad. And boy, I have two of the three squad members here in the studio behind plexiglass, which is uh, fairly useless at this point. But it is nice to see Bill and David and we have Peter on the phone. So uh, hello, everybody. Hi. Hi, Libby. Hey, Libby. And everyone is focused on record-setting inflation that we're experienced with the federal budget coming down later this week and the impact on the cost of living, which is a special concern for older people on fixed incomes. And also, I want to know, what does the squad make of legalized online gambling here in the province as of this week with all those ads promising free plays? Does it put the vulnerable at risk? And uh, is there an age-related risk? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And let's bring in the squad, as I said, David Kravitz, VP of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hey, guys. Hey, Libby. Good to be here. Okay, well, great to see you here. Let's let's talk gambling. So is there validity to the concern that this might really hurt vulnerable older people because older people like to gamble? Well, older people do like to gamble. We know that. In fact, uh, anybody who has talked with folks who run uh, the in-person ca- casinos or did before COVID uh, knew that uh, Fridays, when the when the uh, the Friday of the month that the checks came out, they were overwhelmed with uh, older people. So we know that many uh, older uh, Canadians do gamble and enjoy enjoy doing it. Half a million online gamblers among the 65 plus in Canada. So they, they do it. As to whether they're made more vulnerable, I think that's a very contentious position and there's no real hard evidence. Our seniors uniquely capable of being fooled into risking their money foolishly. Um, I don't think there's any evidence of that. You could argue they are more vulnerable because if something goes wrong and they don't have a income coming in. On the other hand, they've had by definition, decades and decades and decades of being a consumer of, you know, hearing ads, watching ads, reading ads, <clears throat> tuning out messages that are misleading or that they're not interested in. So I don't know why they're any more uh, susceptible to being tricked into doing something or motivated into doing something that they wouldn't otherwise want to do. I don't think that's necessarily true. Well, we uh, know there's a particular fondness for slots. Uh, and Peter, is it going to translate to online gambling? Uh, there, David just gave an impressive number. And do you think that people are more vulnerable? Peter? I, I'm wondering whether yeah. the, um, 
you know, the people who go to casinos, uh, you know, it's an outing for them. They, they get a free lunch off and, you know, they go with their friends, they go on a bus if they're out of town. It's sort of an outing for them. And, and, uh, there's a social element to it, although, you know, there's also the risk of losing money, but you know, there, there is a, there is an element about it that, um, doesn't exist in online betting. And, um, I, I wonder if seniors will be any more, you know, um, you know, duped into, you know, uh, losing money online than, than the younger generation. I, I, I think, you know, I think we see them visibly at casinos. So we, you know, but, but that might just be a factor of it being a, an outing for them, a, a social moment. And uh, they're no more susceptible to betting maybe than, than the younger generations or problem betting. I should, I shouldn't say. Yeah. I, I think uh, I think Peter's uh, got a good uh, point there, and I'm not sure how much it's going to affect uh, people who are CARP members. In fact, in Atlantic Canada, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a survey done of older Atlantic Canadians asking them about their gambling habits and assumed that they gambled. And the feedback was very negative against the. This, how dare you suggest that uh, we all we all gamble? So. Uh, uh, there could be a, an economic uh, point here, too, in terms of uh, at, at what uh, level of the economic uh, structure are people really attracted to uh, to gambling. And uh, because uh, seniors are looking for social activities these, uh, these days uh, coming out of COVID, they're tired, many of them, of doing so much online. I think this might be a difficult time for uh, Ontario to enter into trying to promote this well it's also it's it's uh, a whole other question but it's a pretty crowded field and people are wondering is it really going to be as much of a bonanza as uh, was expected but david who are these half a million older people they're part of a even bigger group who games online without necessarily gambling five million canadians over the age of 65 participate in online gaming but the thing you got to remember is the demographic is so enormous. Now, we're talking about 7-plus million Canadians over the age of 65 that even segments of it are, sub-segments are large. There's a, a, when you take a look at gaming, which is not necessarily wagering, yeah. there's gambling games that don't require betting. There's all kinds of poker websites where you're just playing for points and fake chips and so on for the amusement. There's a whole industry of brain games and interactive uh, instant reward. Click here, follow the bouncing, whatever they are. So I think there's a tremendous uptake of interest in online entertainment as such. Gambling, I see as a subset of that. But I don't see it as some uh, need for you know any pearl clutching about these poor uh, beleaguered seniors who are being tricked into uh, you know gambling their their life savings. So I don't see any evidence of that. Do you uh, agree that with with Peter that uh, people might be sick of doing some, or with Bill? Sorry, that people are sick of doing so much online, so it's not going to be a big thing for them. Um, yes and no. I think that people who are already uh, online, uh, whether it's gaming, whether it's gambling, but I think that people, there's a subset of people who have built that into their habits every day and they don't need to abandon it. They may not increase it. Why does everybody go and play Wordle every day? You know, it takes five minutes and you're hooked. 
but it doesn't take five hours. So I think there's a group that are going to want to keep doing it. And there's a group that were never that interested. I think if you're a gamer, if you're online, if you're playing games online, uh, you're not go you're going to keep doing that. My own opinion. Peter, your opinion? Well, the, the, the government's obviously doing this, or the Ontario government's obviously doing this to grab all the money that Canadians are betting, um, you know, on, on European betting sites or, you know, offshore betting sites. And, and, and it's a huge money. I've seen numbers like as high as 10, 10 billion a year. So they, they're trying to grab this money and keep it in Canada and tax it and, uh, you know, you, use it for Canadian purposes. And, and so, like, the, the rationale behind that is is that these sites have been out there, um, you know, uh, asking for seniors to come and gamble them on them forever, or not, or not forever, just recently in the states and and forever in Europe, and um, you know they've been out there. We've seen the ads. If if you watch sports, you see these ads. If you watch American TV, you see the ads, and um, so they they're just sort of you know they're they're just repatriating the money. They're keeping it in on Ontario and. Uh, so, so they're they're it's it's sort of a very cynical, you know, a very cynical legislation. Like, um, you know, people are going to bet. Let's keep it in Ontario. Let's regulate it. Let's make it keep it safe. And uh, you know, um, but but it, we're not going to create more betters because those people were betting anyway. Uh, I mean, I think there's an issue with the tax revenue, but I guess that's a discussion for another day. Um, okay, well. Um, the squad says uh, it's not an issue because of poor, vulnerable seniors who are maybe being misled into betting too much or any more than there are of those people to begin with. So let us get to the federal budget, which is supposedly focusing on the cost of living bill. What are people looking for? Well, they're certainly looking for help in the cost of living. Uh, continually, our CARP surveys of our members right across the province and across the country uh, say that uh, uh, financial security, their own financial security, is their number one issue, even, a, even ahead of, of health. So anything that the government can do that really helps that, they're looking forward to. The problem uh, that they've had is uh, with for seniors is government has not been focusing on the seniors' needs. They seem to be, the, the impression that seniors are getting is they're giving money and support to every other segment, but they're not, uh, they're not focusing on seniors who are really caught when it comes to being on fixed incomes. Whatever your level of fixed income uh, is, they're still uh, very much caught by inflation, cost of cost of living. They want something done about it. There's not a lot of hope that uh, anything is really going to happen. Well, uh, I think it's pretty clear they they are doing the national child care, and uh, they seem to be pretty focused on people being able to get into the housing market. So uh, that's definitely not anything for older people, David. That's true. They're the older people, particularly on a fixed income, there's a little bit of tinkering around the margins of uh, maybe CPP or something, one-time whatever, but there isn't really a serious look at a growing problem of uh, longevity butting up against progressively higher costs of living. And the burden of that is going to fall on those that are least able to afford it, who have a fixed income, who are going to be living longer. Those costs are going to keep going up. And um, there, as Bill points out, there isn't any real 
uh, relief. And I don't really get a sense of any real urgency around the whole topic. I think it's, oh, there's the seniors, you know, we'll give them a few dollars here and check that box. But there isn't really any um, fresh thinking or or urgent thinking around, you know, what's going to happen as your post-65 life, if you take 65 as the traditional age of retirement, which used to be maybe 10 years, 12 years, is now pushing toward 20, maybe toward there. How are people going to sustain that period of, of life with higher and higher costs and no other income coming in? Who's looking at that holistically within government? Answer, hint, nobody. Peter? Yeah, absolutely. David's right. Because... Um, you know, nowadays when, when you retire, like you don't start, you, you have to think of, of preserving your capital a lot longer than you ever had to before. Like when, in, in the old days when you hit 65 and the average lifespan was 72 or 75, then you started, you know, you, you started hitting your nest egg right when you retired and, and it was drained by the time you passed away. But now, now if, you're li- if, if Canadians are going to live a lot longer, they're going to have to keep growing their money in retirement, adding to it either through work or through, you know, um, strategic investing. And um, nothing eats away at long-term returns like inflation. So, um, you know, someone is going to have to take a serious look at this at some point and, and, and look at the, the number of people in their 90s who um, are running out of money and, 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 and you know, why they're running out of money and what we're going to do about it to make sure it doesn't happen to this huge, you know, surge of uh, of seniors who are going to live, uh, in, in, you know, longer than ever before. Hmm. Let's hear from Raymond in Etobicoke. Hi, Raymond. Hi. Well, mandatory withdrawals from the RIF is what bothers me. Um, Everyone's shaking their head here, Amen. nodding, Amen. nodding. Amen. Go ahead, Raymond. The, Amen. the first time that affected me, my income went up $10,000. And and this, it, it continues on. And, and I don't have, you know, millions, but I've written to the Minister of Finance, to my MP, and even the Prime Minister over the last couple of years, zero response. Not even, a, you know, oh, thank you for your blah, blah, you know. And uh, it, it just goes on and on, and uh, we're forgotten about. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think uh, r- rather than being forgotten about, I mean, there's, you know, they did a, a rough calculation and just thought, this costs too much, we will lose too much in tax revenue. I mean, CARP, uh, institutional memory here, how long has CARP been advocating for the end of mandatory RIF withdrawals? Does anyone know? Well, it's at least six years and uh, probably long. Probably it was longer than, than that. It's much yeah. longer than that. Yeah. Much longer yeah. than that. Yeah. Not even close. No. <laughs> yeah. I say, let me decide when I need something and then I'll withdraw the amount that I need. I remember when they started the RRSPs um, decades ago, a, a different government, different prime minister, he stated publicly, seniors, look after yourself in your old age. And the banks all jumped on that. Wow. And they come out with the RRSP. Oh, boy, save in this. And by the time you get a million dollars, you'll be on easy street. And, you know, the 
Everybody pays into it. I paid in what I could. And um, I'm still at the same address. I haven't moved on to Easy Street. Uh, well said. Raymond, thank you very much for your call. Uh, I mean, it's it's a really big issue. I mean, now uh, with the advent of TFSAs, uh, what a lot of people recommend is that kind of try to balance them out so you have one stream in the uh, TFSA that is not taxable because it's after-tax money and then another from the taxable money. But, you know, it's really nice, and I'm still at the accumulation stage, when you can take a big hunk of money and not pay, pay taxes on it if if you can afford to put it away. But then taking it out isn't going to be that much fun. No, and and getting, you know, if you're then faced with the double whammy, it's one thing to say I need a certain sum of money to last me for so many years, and thank God it's more years and more years and more years. That's one problem that, you know... Is a good problem. a good problem to have. It's another thing to say in addition to, but it's a problem because outliving your money is a phrase that you see. It's routine every week. There's some article that's got the phrase outliving your money. Never heard that phrase before, but now we do. But then on top of it, now we have this sort of silent, deadly inflation that says the things you used to buy that you need, that you absolutely need, are costing more and more and more. It's the highest inflation rates we're seeing since the 1970s. Right. And as usual, guess who gets hit the worst? Those are least able to uh, sustain it. And, and, and there's a, everybody's saying, oh, oh, my goodness, interest rates are going up, but not enough to make a difference with mm. your savings. No, not at all. And one, one of the things that uh, we've discovered, and we, more and more we think it's true, that the politicians and the bureaucrats who are making these decisions still have pensions that are indexed, that keep yeah. them uh, ahead of the game. They really don't understand the issues with uh, other older Canadians. Only 30 Thirty percent of uh, Canadians, on on average, have any kind of fixed pension. So seventy percent of us uh, are caught by things like this uh, this uh, uh, demand of, of withdrawal before uh, before we're ready to take it out. So what we've been saying to CARP members is we've got to get this across to the politicians, the the decision makers, and each of you individually has to get in touch with your elected representative or candidates and tell them you want this changed because obviously the government leadership and the bureaucrats aren't hearing after all these years of so many groups talking about the issue. You know, I'm surprised you said 30% of people have these pensions. I'm surprised it's that high. Yeah. It's yeah. only public servants, right? Well, well and there's, CEOs. I mean, there's, private, there's some private There's pensions. some private ones yeah. uh, too. That are yeah. still available. But no, the, the point is, let's say that that's our lucky day. Thank heavens it's that high. Nevertheless, either way you look at it, seven out of ten do not. Yeah. And so it's whatever you've saved up plus Canada Pension OAS, and that's it. And the costs go up and up and up, and uh, you're stuck. And there's no recognition of this in in a really effective way by the Peter. You're trying to jump in there. The the seventy-one year uh, the seventy-one year rule where where you have to start uh, winding down your or you have to change your RSP into a RIF. Um, that that was that was uh, implemented in the early '90s, I think, or, or late '80s at some point. So um, that's when when you know people were living a lot shorter. So it may have made more sense back then. But 
with expanding, uh, you know, lifetimes. Like they, they have to update these rules and, and you know, make, make and interest rules. rates were through the roof then. Interest rates were through the roof, right? You know, and so economic conditions have changed, and so so is our lifespan dramatically. And and they they really have to change these rules sooner or later, sooner mm-hmm. than later. Well, of course, one of the things, and there's been some work done on pension reform and what to do. So the other thing is that uh, a big recommendation is if you don't absolutely need the money, you should defer taking your Canada pension mm-hmm. to 70. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering if they shouldn't even expand that higher because there are a lot of people who are very healthy and still working at 70 and a growing number. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can you can also defer your OAS as well. So um, you could defer them right out of your like this. This really helps older workers as well, right? Like people yeah. who still have an income after sixty five, and and they can reduce their tax bill that way, and then get a bigger chunk when they do start claiming it when they're well, right. And you don't yeah. you don't automatically get it. You have to ask for it, yeah, so you don't right. have yeah. to opt yeah. out of it or anything. Yeah. But uh, I don't. I mean, I don't know how many people actually do that, but. I'm sure there's a number we can find somewhere. So, I mean, but it's it's interesting and it's important to talk about these things, except nobody is expecting anything, any movement on any of this on Thursday. No, I think no, that's, no. that's a reasonable non-expectation. <laughs> Okay, well, moving moving right along to something that's, I don't know if it's lighter, I was surprised when I saw a headline out of Quebec saying that Quebec is scrapping a, retire, a, a requirement for 75-year-olds to take a driving test, and they've moved that up to 80, and they're not doing it because they decided, gee, it's ageist. They're doing it to uh, save time and money. Administrative uh, wear and tear, right. Right. I mean, I didn't even know that such a thing existed. Uh, You know, driving and when to stop driving is is a huge issue. It is a huge issue uh, for older Canadians right across the country. And there's a checkerboard of uh, systems and controls and and, uh, rules that are in in place. Uh, And But basically, the problem is no one is willing to set any kind of real standard that talks about how you tell when people should drive or when they, they shouldn't. Most people think that you should be able to go to your doctor or the family can go to the doctor and say, can mom still drive the medical profession doesn't want to do that because there there are no agreed on uh, standards for them to make that uh, that decision uh, governments have have uh, drawn away from the question because they don't want the political flack driving is such an important issue for so many older canadians there's probably nothing that happens uh, uh, to us as we as we get older that affects our life more than being told we can't drive anymore and you know i i I served on a, a, a government committee uh, 12 years ago looking uh, at this, and, and there, could, there was no agreement. The people around the table couldn't agree on, on how to do it. So it'll, I think the, the Quebec government is taking an easy way out, uh, and it'll be interesting to see if there is any real effect of, of the change they've made. But it's well, 80 in Ontario, It's right? 80 in Ontario. Yeah. I, I'm not sure about the, the rest of the country. And what you're saying, people do go to their doctor and the doctor can take away your driver's license, but I would think they would only do that in fairly 
obvious and extreme cases, yeah. and it's still extremely fraught. Yeah. Doctors say to us, why would I take the driver's license away and upset my patient so much that he or she will never come back to me for her real health, health needs? I'm not willing to take that risk. Right, exactly. And then let's face it, the topic itself is all over the map. I mean, uh, we all know many younger people who should have, who have no business being behind the wheel of a car. Well, that's true. And uh, I'm not, and I know uh, older people who on their own stop doing certain things, right? Yes. Sometimes uh, your eyes get bad in ways that can't be corrected for night vision. So they don't right. drive at night or they don't highway drive, right. but they still get around the neighborhood. And I've, I've even seen things that say, well, you can still drive with uh, early cognitive impairment. If, I've seen well, that in the, writing. Well, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. If the goal is to get from A to B safely, and if you can respond to what you see out your wind, windshield, yes. But, but again, these are such subtle uh, differences in, in down south uh, in the states. It, it's quite common in, in communities to you've replaced your car with a golf cart because you don't have snow and ice and you are just moving around the neighborhood in and out of. I haven't seen that, but I guess another. I don't spend enough time in Florida. But there is a, but in, there are some communities where you see people getting around on a golf cart. They're not in the main traffic. They're just that's but they're mobile. The point is they have an automated wheeled. You know, vehicle. Um, so, that, but we don't have that kind of an option here with our climate. So it's uh, all or nothing, I'm afraid. Okay, let's take a call from Jan in Guelph. Hi, Jan. Hello, Libby. I'll try and shorten this. I really will. Uh, I had 57 years uh, accident-free driving with two forgiven for two small accidents in that time. I'm 81. I went to Mount Forest to my son's for Christmas, came back on the 27th because snowfall was um, coming, got into Fergus. It, it hadn't snowed in Mount Forest after all. Got into Fergus. It had snowed there and in Guelph, and the roads were not very good, and they were slippery. And I came round onto Tower Street, and I was at the back of about five cars who kept trying to get into the left lane to, be, to beat the tractor trailer that was at the top of the light. So I stayed out of the way when it was clear. I gently released my back foot off the brake to let the car coast to the bit nearer, not too near the tractor trailer. But the car, when I put my foot on gently again to put the pressure on to stop, it slid right into the back of the tractor trailer and totaled my car because there was a big iron bar on the tractor trailer. So Are you anyway, okay? Since then, I've not been driving. I received a letter from the Ministry of Transport because I was over 80. They have still not responded to tell me whether I can drive again or not. They've only told me by phone, which is not legal, that I can't drive until I get their response. Well, they're all backed up because of COVID, among other things. Well, I'm glad to hear you're okay, and I hope you can get some answers for them. Presumably, they're catching up, but it affected all kinds of people. Young people couldn't get their driver's licenses or their driver's tests. But so I, I, I don't want to interrupt, but I'm talking about elder drivers who can drive but can't because they You've got to wait for their decision, although my doctor says I am fit to drive. Okay, well, yes, you're absolutely right. And uh, I, hope you get, I hope you get some action soon. Thanks so much for your call. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. Um, 
if we're out of time. I, I just want to, and we should take this subject up again, but I remember uh, one of our fabulous and uh, late departed neighbors, uh, the neighborhood was all a Twitter when Mrs. Bonnie Castle bought herself a new Mercedes at the age of 91. <laughs> she said the other one was too hard to get out of the garage. <laughs> Good and, for her. You and she, she drove it until her um, demise. Uh, and she also would get dressed up in pearls and have a cocktail every <laughs> afternoon. But anyway, may as well. of long life. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, on that note, it's, a, it's another thing that we really do have to talk about again. Right. In the meantime, thank you so much, Peter Mugridge, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. Thanks, thank Libby. Thanks, Thanks Libby. Libby. Okay, we are taking a break. When we come back, this new scourge and surge of COVID, we'll talk to Dr. Peter Uni. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There's no question that we are in a sixth wave of COVID. And the BA2 variant fueling it is purportedly even more contagious than Omicron. And just about everyone knows someone who just tested positive, but the numbers are guesstimate with very limited PCR testing. And supposedly we logged more than 2,000 cases today, more than 3,000 yesterday. And our next guest has said the numbers are more likely 10 times that, 30 or 35,000 new cases a day. So let us go right to Dr. Peter Uni, the outgoing scientific director of the province's COVID-19 science advisory table. Hi, Dr. Uni. Hi, lady. So, uh, you know, I'm uh, walking around and we're starting to hear about how widespread this wave is, but it it hasn't penetrated. You go to the supermarket and you're lucky if half the people are wearing any kind of mask. Yeah, I mean, we definitely need to update our projections that's happening as we speak because behavior of people has changed dramatically, but really dramatically. And, uh, you know, I, you, you may remember I, I said that we struggle still, you know, to calibrate our models properly. And we were able, you know, to make certain assumptions about, about, you know, moderate behavior change of people and therefore came up with our uh, projections. We will clearly be above these projections because behavior has changed so much, for sure. What, what were the moderate behavior projections you made and what, what are you finding? Well, what we actually assumed is once BA takes over that, you know, people would increase their contact by about 30% as compared to beginning of March, and that 50% of all contacts that people would have would be with masks. Now you look outdoors and you tell me whether that's a good assumption. Still, it's not, of course. We know that. So what we, what we see is um, a steeper slope of hospital occupancy now than uh, before. It's not, you know, dramatically more steep, but it's clearly steeper. And um, this uh, corresponds well with what we see in wastewater, again, with a clear-cut, you know, uptick. We double roughly every 10 to 11 days our concentration of uh, viral RNA in the wastewater. Um, and and uh, this means we're uh, clearly in this wave, of course, but 
luckily, despite the uh, behavior of people that has changed so much, the slope is less steep than before. So our, our upwards movement is less steep than previously, which makes complete sense because we probably now have around 4.5 million people who have been infected with Omicron since December the 1st. And of course, we also have 7.2 million people who have um, had the third dose. And this means we have quite some immunity playing in our favor. But it's clear that, you know, our original projections that we would be below 1,000 um, uh, hospital ward beds occupied with patients with COVID, this number will most likely be too low. It won't go as high as before. That's relatively unlikely, I would believe, based on what we're seeing and based on the immunity that we already have in the province. But it will it will clearly be higher than what we have projected because of the behavior change. Well, um, since the new subvariant is so contagious, do people have to change what they use for protection? I mean, I've heard get rid of your cloth masks, which I think most people have already done. But now I'm hearing even the surgical masks aren't good enough and, and you need an N95. Oh, first of all, what would help is if we didn't create a tidal wave in general, you know, and not that we would actually just, you know, be okay with our numbers. We need to be aware of that. Right now, you talked about perhaps 30,000 cases or so. Based on our wastewater, I would assume that we have between forty and 50,000 cases. Per wow, day. that fact, was last week you gave me that exactly. number. So you see, times are, times are changing. So that's one thing. Then the other part is, if you continue to wear a mask, and uh, I guess you and I will continue to. Um, so the, the minimum would be um, a medical mask and on top of that, a cloth mask. Why? Because you inc- improve the fit of the medical mask. If you want to go a bit uh, a bit better than that, this would be uh, three options. A KF94, that's the, that's the uh, South Korean standard that corresponds more or less to an N95, but it's with a with a, how do you call that, an ear flap, you know, to how you fix the mask behind oh. your ears, not behind your head. And it's actually very comfortable. You could have a KN95, again, that's uh, uh, with, a, with fixation behind your ears rather than the head, or then the proper N95, which has elastic bands that go around your head. All of those are good. So we have four options. All of them would be better and more protective than just a simple medical mask or a simple uh, cloth mask with two to three layers. Hmm. Yeah, another thing to worry about. Now, it seems that the cases themselves are possibly less severe. There are a lot of people who are asymptomatic or almost asymptomatic, and a lot of people who don't have very much in the way of symptoms. Is that because of the immunization, or is that because oh, of the strain? No, no, it's, it's, so, of course, it's a combination of the two, but we need to be aware of that what plays most of a role is us. We are the host. And if we start to be fit for purpose, meaning we defend the virus, then we will experience less severity on average. That's what's happening. In addition, we were lucky. We talked about that before. This was pure dumb luck. It wasn't evolution playing always this way. It just did this, this time, chance, nothing else, that it's uh, indeed a bit less severe. Um, and it's a combination of these two, and this probably continues to hold also for BA2. That happens to be more uh, transmissible, but a bit more transmissible again, but certainly not more severe. 
Mm-hmm. Now I've started to hear about yet another new variant that is even more contagious. Yeah, so I'm not sure which one you talk about, probably the combination of BA1 and BA2 in the UK. And uh, it just uh, seems to have taken the best of both worlds in its favor and indeed become a bit more contagious even. We don't know yet where this is going with this one. And right now, since it's a recombination of uh, you know these two viruses, I would expect and hope that we wouldn't see more severity. And I'm not even sure whether it will indeed take over. We will find out. You know, here, BA2 struggled quite a bit because we didn't just have initially BA1 and then we, we, we switched to BA2. There was an intermediate step, another subvariant. It gets very technical here now, which was called BA11. And BA11 was already more um, transmissible than the original Omicron, which was called BA1. So, you know, we do that stepwisely, and our BA2 didn't have such an advantage anymore about the BA11, and therefore it took actually quite a while before BA2 took over, which has happened now, it's dominant. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, before we go, advice, upgrade the masks if you're wearing a mask, is that it? Um, well, at, at least go for, for medical plus cloth on top to improve the fit. Uh, I we have just really good here, in, you know, with, at my house and, uh, and also my dad who is just visiting right now. He, he received them from us. We all have the, uh, the KF94 that works really well. All of those are good. You can order them online. You can reuse them. You don't always have to change them. So I have, I, I keep wearing my KF94 for, I don't know, two weeks. I don't go out that much, obviously. All good. So that's, that's a possibility. If you haven't had your third dose, get it. And if there are fourth doses available, you know, for certain groups of people who are more vulnerable, um, uh, once this is ready, if you're about uh, three to four months after your third dose, you probably want to get a fourth dose as well. Once we move into, uh, you know, the, the wave subsiding, this will happen in, I don't know, four weeks or so. We don't know yet exactly. Then, of course, things will hopefully get better. Why? Because of the weather and us, all of us going outside. And when do you expect guidance from NASI on a fourth dose? Um, I didn't pay attention over the weekend and on Friday. On Friday, I haven't seen anything yet. I would, I would uh, expect it any moment, to be honest with you. Okay. In the next few days. Any moment. Dr. Peter Uni, thank you so much for that. You're very welcome. Have a good afternoon. You too as well. And we are going to take another break. When we come back, we'll talk about the gas tax reduction we are expecting to be officially announced. The Premier already commented on it, so uh, it's happening, but with a couple of caveats when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The average cost of gas in Ontario has risen in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, almost reaching two bucks a liter in March. Motorists are expected to see another gas price hike due to the increase in the federal carbon tax that came into effect on Friday, April the 1st. Well, last year, Ford said he would finally honor his pledge to slash the gas tax by 5.7 cents per liter before the next budget, which at the time was set for March 31st. Now it is April 30th. That's the budget. And uh, 
he says he is going to deliver the tax cut finally. Uh, but there's a caveat. It, you have to reelect him in order to get it. It would take effect July 1st. And here's his explanation for that. Well, when I spoke to the, the finance department, they, they said it's very complicated moving through the logistics and everything. But the good news is on July the 1st, on the busiest season that people travel all around Ontario, and I encourage everyone to uh, take advantage of the staycation uh, tax credit as well. So uh, do you buy that? It's not taking effect until after the election because it's too complicated, even though it was promised way back before the last election. Still, it is quite significant. And by the way, it's only going to be in place for six months. I'm questioning that as well. Uh, it's quite significant. It's a reduction of 5.7 cents a liter on the gas tax and the fuel tax by 5.3 cents a liter. And it'll be the first time that the gas tax has been reduced in more than 30 years. Now I'm joined by Dan McTague, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Hi, Dan. Hey, hey, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? Any better? I'll cancel my life insurance. Just kidding. Okay. So, so, um, how will this affect the actual price of gas? How much will it go down? Well, 5.7 cents plus HST. So you're looking on the gasoline side, a decrease of six cents a liter. Um, the uh, fuel taxes, that should have been, the word there should have been diesel because it's actually yeah. diesel prices. It'll drop 5.3 plus uh, another uh, 0.4 cents. Uh, so 5.7 cents, 5.8 cents uh, for diesel. That's critical, by the way, because that's the stuff that motivates the price uh, of other things that we uh, often take for granted, but uh, food prices, lumber prices, and the mix. So uh, it's uh, diesel, of course, is the workhorse of our economy, like it or not. And so it dropping could have a little bit of a positive impact. But, you know, we're going to be dealing with higher prices in the summer. And what that really means is, yeah, you might be saving 3 or $4 on a tank full. But uh, other factors, including, as you mentioned, one of them, the federal government's carbon tax, now at, uh, what, uh, 12.5 cents a litre with HST and uh, 15.2 cents a diesel, uh, pretty much takes away anything the province is giving. Hmm. Uh, do you have any insight on why it is just being put into effect for six months? Uh, perhaps they believe that uh, that takes us right to the end of 2022. Oil prices may begin to tame and calm down a little bit and that there won't be that need. Uh, I tend to think, as I did last year at this time, when I predicted buck uh, seventy-five, buck eighty for a liter of gasoline, that uh, we would uh, continue to see uh, higher prices. This is not going away. Oil is going to be in high demand and short supply for the foreseeable future. And of course, we have, uh, if that weren't uh, bad enough, we have politicians at the federal level who definitely want these prices to go high and are giddy over the fact you and I have to pay much more. Because their goal is to make it so prohibitive that uh, we don't emit anything. And that is, as a result of all of this, we meet not only our climate goals, but uh, we can also boast on international fronts that we are getting our job done where the rest of the world is not. Hmm. Uh, so we have this reduction coming if the progressive conservatives are reelected for six months. And uh, they're hoping that things will ease up by then. Uh, in terms of... Uh, the actual effect, I've seen estimates as high 
as it would save people 400 a year. Does that mean that this would save, who would it save 200 bucks in six months for somebody who drives a lot? Well, if you're using 50 liters a week uh, and you're saving six cents a liter, I mean, that's three bucks a week uh, times, uh, you know, 26. So I'm not sure about that math. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They may have a little different set of math than I do. It depends how much you use. And uh, as I said, it might be a bigger deal for transport trucks, uh, for trains and for uh, jets that uh, fuel up in Ontario. But it, uh, it certainly wouldn't lead to that much. I think the expectation is, it will be a savings, probably in the order of $150, best case scenario. But again, it depends on what our usage is. And, and, and again, of course, it's temporary. By the way, I think all of this is not because they need time to you know, put it in place. If the tax were to go up overnight, gas stations <laughs> would be forced to reflect that tomorrow, especially if it's in a budget. We'll see if uh, Ottawa Liberals do that. But I think at the end of all of this, it's really about the government's inability to make ends meet. Uh, it has committed a large amount of money to giving us money back for our uh, our license plates. And at the same time, the government has to fork out $6.5 billion a year so you and I don't have to pay $0.35 cents, uh, per kilowatt hour of hydro thanks to uh, the program of 10 years ago, the previous government, to uh, put in the Green Energy Act. A lot of folks have forgotten about that. They supported it. They voted for it. And uh, unfortunately, someone has to pay for it, and it's not going to be consumers. It ultimately winds up on the uh, books of the province in terms of debt. Well, what do you mean it's not going to be consumers, taxpayers, consumers, consumers, yeah, taxpayers? taxpayers. Yeah, they, they will ultimately pay for it. It's it's showing up in terms of debt. It just doesn't allow the Fed, the provincial government, the, the financial mover, uh, maneuverability. When we made that decision in 2010 uh, to support, and again 2015, to support green energy, all of its costs, we knew it was going to go through the roof. We knew that it would force electricity prices uh, on a kilowatt-hour basis from about 8 to 30 cents to pay for all these windmills and all these solar panels and make a lot of people do very, very well. We all knew and voted cheerfully in 2015 or whenever it was for this kind of project. And so now the government is saying, uh, and people are complaining, I can't afford my hydro bills. So the government has said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to alleviate that by paying the additional third that you would have to otherwise pay. And we're going to put that on the books of the province. So in other words, the province is incurring a $6.5 billion debt uh, every year in order so that you and I don't have to pay for the full effect of green energy. Uh, but the, the government sort of seems to be appealing to drivers. They're cutting the license plates. That's a, a the license plate renewal fee. That's a billion dollars, Yeah, uh, and, which is also a move that a lot of people panned uh, because yeah. there there's also a purpose to the license plate renewal. And... Um, you know, but it seems like uh, building highways, cutting the gas tax, however briefly, license renewal. I mean, there seems to be a message here, a message aimed directly at the suburbs. Well, maybe, but I also think uh, there is a problem that the government may have in- did not anticipate, and that's that it had to make good on its pledge that it made in 2018. They said they were going to drop a 10 cents a liter. All they did was kill the carbon tax, or at least time we used to call it then the cap and trade. That was 4.3 cents. They're still out 5.7 cents. And I suspect that when I was surprised when I heard about the license plate thing, because I thought, well, the first thing you want to do is honor the commitment you pledged to campaign on. And they didn't do that. Uh, As for the savings uh, in terms of gasoline, that may be one thing. But as I mentioned, we all have something in common. Uh, when a farmer has to pay more uh, as input costs to plant and to cultivate and to, and, and a processor, food processor has to 
spend money, uh, you know, sending grain to market as well as getting it processed and then getting it to the to the to the uh, grocery store, is it any wonder? I mean, there's a lot of other factors, but the most important one driving up the price of the cost of living is energy. We have an energy affordability problem, and everyone wants to tiptoe around it, but they don't want to address the fundamentals that. You know, while we think it's a great thing to double down, triple down on higher carbon taxes and other things, we tend to look, uh, we tend to lose sight of the fact that uh, in Canada, affordability is 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 becoming a very very serious problem, made no easier by uh, governments that find trendy ways to increase prices uh, at the exact inappropriate time. Well, last week in the United States, Joe Biden started releasing a massive amount of reserves. Is that something that we should think about? Stupid decision. We don't have reserves. We actually have uh, what we could do is displace all of Russia and oil in this world. But we have a federal government. Look, I'm an 18 year liberal member of parliament. I can I had the consumer file for many years. I've provided two rebates for Canadians, so I'm not coming at the liberals because they're liberals. I'm going to be after these guys because I think they they've uh, they've drank the uh, they've drank the Kool Aid as far as. Uh, going down this road of destroying our energy energy sector. Uh, Joe Biden releasing uh, the strategic petroleum reserve is on a strategic pricing reserve. In other words, what he's doing is he's signaling to the market, I'm going to flood the market temporarily, but I have a responsibility to ensure that that reserve remains viable because if I don't, then prices are really going to go up. And you saw that. So we saw prices on the markets last week drop, uh, what, 4 or $5 a barrel, $6 a barrel. They're back up three and a half dollars a barrel this morning because analysts are looking and saying, "Wait a minute, you're basically using up a reserve. You're drying up that which we need as a real cushion. Should the situation with, for instance, Russia get really bad, it's meant for a crisis. It's not meant because you don't like the price of gasoline." Biden did this because he knows he's, his uh, Congress is likely to lose seats come November at the uh, the midterms, and that could mean real problems not just for the Biden administration but for his green energy push, which, uh, as it turns out, Americans are not willing to accept in quite the same way Canadians have. Hmm. Uh, so uh, what is your prediction? Let's assume that the PCs get reelected. Uh, let's assume that uh, things get a little better on the COVID front by the summer. Where do you think the gas price will be then? Yeah, Libby, I think we're back to 190. Um, and look, um, maybe even before we get there, uh, because oil will go back to $120, $125 a barrel with or without the crisis in Ukraine. We just have a shortage of oil. It's as simple as that. We've spent a lot of time saying we don't want to invest in oil. Move your investments into these green things. And I'm, look, I'm not angry at them. I'm just simply saying when the world wants more and you produce less, price has to give. This week, though, we're going to see a $0.02 cent increase on Tuesday, Wednesday, rather, um, pushing us to 170 And to get ready for the shift over from winter the summer gasoline spec. That's that's a thing. Been around for 30 years. That's going to push push up gasoline prices at least, if I'm looking at the markets today, $0.08 cents a litre, likely by the end of the week, if not the beginning of next week. So uh, just a heads up for your listeners here, Olivia. Well, if we're getting summer prices, I hope we at least get some summer weather with it. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. I was in Calgary last week. It was warm out there and freezing over here. Uh, climate's back. Okay. Don McTague, thanks so much for that. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Okay, well, uh, you heard it all here. We're going to get, uh, you know, a little bit of a cut for a little while, and is it going to amount to anything? Well, if Dan is correct, maybe not so much. Uh, And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.